Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much again for the opportunity to preach here. Um, I enjoyed it very much last time and look forward to it this morning. Uh, Our text this morning will be John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. It is the uh, Jesus calling of the first disciples. Again, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Before I read that, let me pray. Lord, we come to hear your word with limitations and hearts weighed down by anxiety, indifference, and coldness. We hear your word weekly, but if you do not make it effective, it will not change us. So send your spirit to us this morning, Lord, to make your words living and active in us and change us, even if in some small way. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. Please be seated. There is much talk in the world today 
about the growing divide between Christendom and the world. Christendom and our, and our broader culture. And rightfully so, because there is, in fact, a growing divide. Not only is Christendom, and, and, and by, that, by that term I mean the church writ large, the, the Catholic, the small c Catholic church. Not only is Christendom actually shrinking and quickly, but it has less and less common ground with the culture outside of its walls. If you were to do some street evangelism today, as some of us may have, may have been encouraged to do when we were younger, it's more and more likely that people will not only disagree with you when you tell them about Scripture's redemptive narrative, but they'll actually be baffled when you start talking about sin and judgment, God's Word and grace. We don't even speak the same language anymore. These concepts are increasingly foreign in our society. People know less and less about what they mean in the first place. Even less likely will they come to agree with you. Christendom in the world can barely have a conversation because we don't speak the same language anymore. And sometimes, quite literally, Think about all that is usually now meant in words like diversity and inclusion and tolerance. These words are now laden with meaning and with definition that they didn't have even one generation ago. Tim Keller, in an article he wrote, takes note of this increasing gap between the church and the world. And he calls for the church but especially for individual Christians. So not just the church as an institution, but the church as the body of individual members of Christ. He calls for us to recognize that as our faith and our view of reality itself become more and more foreign to the world, the church has less and less shared understanding with the world. Instead, he advocates the creation of front porches for the church. Front porches in in quotes. A place or a setting or even just an individual relationship that is born out of the life of the church but is not the church itself. These front porches should be welcoming to non-believers. A place where they can come and belong And be known while exploring and even just becoming familiar with the truth claims of Christianity before they are called to come into the church itself. But keep this idea, especially of being known in your mind as we we walk through this passage this morning. Because people do not just become Christians by simply knowing are precious doctrines, and they are precious. They don't become Christians just simply by knowing them or even by assenting to, their, to, their, to the truth of them, but by becoming known to themselves and to others. They become Christians by becoming known to themselves and to others through the lens of this doctrine. So the first thing to notice about our passage this morning is the people-to-people 
connections. This is a passage about relationships. Every future disciple in this passage is reached through a connection to an existing disciple with Philip as the only possible exception. John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew and John the Apostle, who wrote the book, followed Jesus because of what John the Baptist has been teaching them about him. And one of those disciples, Andrew, brings in Simon Peter. Now, according to the ESV, it is Philip who came into contact with Jesus. According to the ESV, the way it's translated, Philip came into contact with Jesus directly. But actually, the original Greek leaves open the possibility that it was actually Andrew who made contact with him. But either way, Philip is the one who is in contact with Nathaniel. The testimony of the New Testament as a whole is clear that the gospel usually spreads through some form of relationship. Now, I know that this causes some of our ears to perk up because in the Reformed world, we greatly value the preached word as well we should, as, as does Scripture itself. But the importance of relationships applies to preaching as well. Scripture shows us that there should be a close relationship between preacher and hearers whenever possible. Not exclusively, but it should be the ideal. Timothy had a relationship with the church in Ephesus beyond the pulpit, as we see when Paul gives him instructions on how to relate to his congregants, how to teach how to encourage, how to rebuke, etc. And Paul himself reminded the church in Corinth that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7-8, through 8, Paul says this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Paul knew his people intimately, warmly, in close, deep relationship. So let us never feel a tension between the proclamation of the word and the importance of relationships. It's not that you can't it's not that you can't or shouldn't proclaim the word at times without relationship, but ideally the two go hand in hand. We ought to aim to proclaim the word in the context of relationship even in the public preaching. So ask yourself, do you have room for relationships in your life? Now, whenever somebody asks me a question like this, it's kind of a, could be interpreted as a a loaded question. A question that implies that I need to do more, that I need to add something to the already very full plate of my life. I am frankly, usually not very open to it. I'm a little skeptical. I don't have a lot of patience 
for just loading more and more busyness on people. And I'm sure that many of y'all feel the same way. So let me propose a more nuanced way to approach this question of whether or not we have time for connections with other people. We do indeed need to acknowledge that ultimately we will make time for what is important to us. In other words, if you want to know what's important to me, come and see what I actually spend my time on, not necessarily what I tell you is important to me. Everything we do reflects what we value. And we should all ask ourselves from time to time whether the way that we spend our resources, our time, our our mental and emotional bandwidth, is it actually reflective of biblical priorities? And to be clear, that's a hard question for each of us. And we all need to give each other grace and patience and freedom to answer it differently. So we all have different dispositions different convictions about what's important in our lives and different circumstances. So we have to be gracious with each other as we, as we ask ourselves that question. But as we ask ourselves this, as we reflect on this, we should also consider to what extent are the supposedly non-negotiable demands on us you know those those places where you feel like you have no wiggle room like I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do that and I what time do I have left over we should ask ourselves to to what extent do these non-negotiable demands or supposedly non-negotiable demands are are they really self-imposed requirements driven by the fear of something or by a need to be in control, or some sort of unhealthy desire for success, ambition, wealth, or the regard of others. These emotions, these impulses, these empty desires, these anxieties weigh us down and sap our time and our energy and our emotions Beyond the actual tasks and obligations that we do, in fact, shoulder. Biblically, these are called idols. And our idols enslave us to their demands. Just as the false idol worship to which Israel in the Old Testament succumbed again and again and again, just as those demands proved to be crushing on them to the extent of even giving up their own children as, as human sacrifices at times. Just as they wait on them, our idols also, no less than theirs, take and take and take from us and enslave us. Jesus frees us from enslavement to these empty desires. This is, this is one critical way to look at salvation. This is what salvation means. This is what it means to be, <clears throat> to be freed from the power of sin. Jesus frees us from the enslavement to these empty desires and these false idols. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When we value the things that Jesus values, when we love the things that God loves, when we love God Himself and Jesus Himself above all else, we become free from the burdensome yoke of the false desires that cause us to feel like we have no options. The false desires that cause us to feel like all we can do is sit here and plod through each day, day to day, just trying to hold it all together. And I have no margin for anything else or for anybody else. He frees us from these desires. This is what Jesus meant when he says in Matthew chapter 11, 29 through 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Instead of serving false idols that will only ever take and take and take until we have nothing left, we are called to give up our need to control, our selfish ambitions, our unhealthy desires, for wealth and ambition. We serve a Lord who provides for all of our needs. As we seek first the kingdom, He has already given us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and made us heirs of the new heavens and the new earth. What else could we possibly need? What else could we want? What does all this high-minded language mean of Spiritual blessings and the new heavens and the new earth. In its essence, it means that He alone meets our deepest desires. Desires which He created in us and placed in us in the first place. It's from this place of satisfaction in Jesus this place where we repent of trying to fill ourselves with empty things, this is the place where we find the resources that we didn't know we had, the freedom and the conviction to intentionally engage others in relationship and truth. Jesus said in John chapter 7, 37-38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On a practical note. On a practical note, I think we can all agree that our world is making it harder and harder to have real substantive relationships with other people. Relationships in which we can see them for who they really are. In fact, creating connection takes intentionality. It takes sacrifice. And it includes risk in our world. It's not, it's not always, it's, in fact, I would say it is rarely truly organic in our world today. But I still don't think that it's as complex as we sometimes make it out to be. People want to be known. 
They want to be connected even if they don't consciously realize it. Most people will accept an offer of friendship coming from somebody who shows genuine interest in them without ulterior motive. And so this leads to the second major observation from our passage this morning. Jesus, this is the second major observation. Jesus drew in these first disciples by how he demonstrated that he knew them. He demonstrated that he knew them in tandem with teaching them. As John the Baptist's disciples begin to follow him, Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And several commentators point out that it's, it's very significant that Jesus says, that, that Jesus does not say, who are you seeking? He says, what are you seeking? He's inviting, themsel- he's inviting them to open themselves up and to let their true desires be known both to themselves and to him. Their response shows that that is indeed what they wanted. What are you, where are you staying? They say to him. They were seeking a more intimate and extended time with him in which they could know and be known. And Jesus' response, come and you will see, is not simply an instruction to follow him to his dwelling place at the time, but an invitation to come and to know him intimately, firsthand, and for themselves. And they spend the rest of the day with him. Likewise, when he meets Simon, Jesus looks at him and says, You are Simon, the son of John, and you will be known as Cephas. Jesus is saying, I know who you are, Simon, and I know your future. And so I'm giving you a new nickname that goes along with it. Because as we know from Matthew 16, verse 18, the name Peter reflects his role as a future leader of the church. Jesus is making it clear to Peter, not only do I know you, but I have incredible plans for you. And with Nathaniel, with Nathaniel, Jesus shows that he knows something of his character. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is revealing that he knows him, and Nathaniel understands what Jesus is is saying. How do you know me? And then Jesus doubles down. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Not only do I know your character, Nathaniel, I know what you were doing this morning. And Nathaniel, he gets it. Nathaniel understands the point and responds emphatically, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. People trust and are drawn in by those who know them and and who allow themselves to be known. This is because the image of God in us gives us the desire for relationship with God primarily, but also with his other image bearers, other people. 
Our Trinitarian God is eternal relationship among the members of the Trinity. God himself is a relationship. It is, it is part of his very essence. And in fact, the gospel is at its heart being known once again by this Trinitarian God and being fully accepted. Knowing people deeply is not just an evangelism strategy or a tool that's just right for our kind of moment in history. It is a foretaste of the gospel. It's a foretaste of the full restoration between God and his people. It is a participation in in some part and some taste of the very essence of God. This is what's captured in, the, in, the, in God's Old Testament, the, the basic covenantal formula that we first see with Abraham. You will be my people and I will be your God. That is the gospel. That is the gospel at its heart. By knowing and seeing people as God sees them and by letting yourself be known To them, you are giving others a taste of the kingdom in which they will be once and for all fully and perfectly known. It's a down payment on the kingdom. Galatians chapter 4 verse 9 tells us that in his kingdom, we have come to know and to be known by God. And that changes everything. Also, John chapter 17, verse 3, the high, priestly, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In knowing others for the sake of the gospel, we participate in the redemptive work of That God is doing in them. Nothing is more purposeful. Nothing is more rewarding. Nothing is more fulfilling. Than to know and to see. And to to participate in God's image restored in others. Besides being a foretaste of the gospel. Knowing others is also a first step in loving them. How can you love your neighbor as yourself if you do not know him? More specifically, how can you love your neighbor by applying the word to his life if you have not yet learned from him how he has experienced his own brokenness And the brokenness of the world around him. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears. It is his folly and shame. And again Proverbs 29 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for him. There is more hope for a fool than for him. 
We have to understand what's going on in our neighbors' lives before we can know how to help them grasp the gospel. While there is only one gospel, it is multifaceted. And some aspects of it may be more obviously applicable to a person right as they are coming into the kingdom than other aspects of it. Here's what I mean. The one living licentiously may need to hear about God's wrath in order to hear about His grace. The abused or oppressed need to hear about their worth and value as communicated by Christ's work on the cross on their behalf. The guilt-ridden and the shameful need to hear that there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In order to know how to speak wisely and knowingly to someone, we must see and hear people for who they are and for what they have experienced. So consider the various approaches that Jesus himself takes with various people in the New Testament. He loves the Pharisees by rebuking them firmly in their pride, their greed, and their desire to be respected by men. But with the poor and lowly, those on the outside of society, he demonstrates tenderness and acceptance and knowledge of their suffering. For example, John 3, he challenges Nicodemus the Pharisee who thinks that he knows about the kingdom. He challenges him on what he thinks he knows about the kingdom. You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You have not even begun to understand. You haven't seen it yet for all of your knowledge and your learning and your rule following. He challenges Nicodemus to leave behind his self-righteousness and his self-sufficiency. But then, in the very next chapter, John 4, with the Samaritan woman at the well, he presents himself as living water. The, the, The existential fulfillment of what she is longing for but can't find as she moves From relationship to relationship to relationship. And even there, he does not shy away from calling her sin what it is. He's not shying away from it. But Jesus showed up in different settings, demonstrating different facets of the gospel based on the experiences and the pasts and the type of brokenness in those who were listening to him. John Calvin begins his his most important work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, with the observation that real knowledge of God only comes in tandem with knowledge of ourselves, and vice versa. In other words, our knowledge of God is limited to the extent that we know ourselves. 
And Calvin explains that this is because it is in reflecting on your own limitations, on your own finitude, and especially on your own sin, that we begin to come to an understanding, an experiential understanding of God's perfection and holiness and grace. Now, why do I bring this up? How does this relate to our call to know people and to be known by them? When we come to know people, they become more known to themselves. When we make ourselves known to others, we come to know ourselves more. Now, this may sound a little quirky, but if you think about it, we all, we all know this experientially. Most of us have had the experience of being relieved or gaining clarity on our own lives, on our own problems, once we've sat down with a, with a good listening friend and kind of unpacked everything. This, we use this phrase of, of using somebody as a sounding board for that reason, right? Right? It means that as we walk through the process of understanding ourselves well enough to communicate that to somebody else, we come to understand ourselves better. We come to see how our choices, how our environments, how our own dispositions and strengths and weaknesses have shaped us into the people we are today. Broken people in need of God's mercy with the image of God in us marred. When we know people, we not only learn how their specific story interacts with the gospel most prominently, but we also help them to understand their own need for redemption as they come to know themselves. This is what will be needed. This, this call to know is, is, what we, what, is what will be needed to create the front porch that Tim Keller calls us to. The front porch of the church in which those who do not know Christ can be known and therefore begin to understand themselves in light of the doctrines that they're learning and come to, to understand God and their need for His grace. Truly, it is incredible what people, especially people who are suffering or who are lonely, will tell somebody who has the humble willingness to listen. So let your desire to see the kingdom bear fruit in other people, let that desire create a deep curiosity in you to know others. So lastly, our passage this morning closes with a promise on a high note. Look at verse 47. Jesus has demonstrated that he knows Nathanael through and through. Nathanael is amazed at being known and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And Jesus responds to him. Jesus responds, 
Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, just wait. You're amazed at this? You have no idea yet what it means to be fully known by God. You will see full communion of God and man restored as God has been saying, as God has been promising from the very beginning. Jesus is, of course, referencing Jacob's vision of a ladder from Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. And, and he dreamed, he being Jacob, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And skip down to verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. God is restoring the gate of heaven, and he is building his house with us in which we will be known. Jacob recognized that this ladder represented God's promised communion with the earth. His restored relationship with humanity. It is the promise that heaven and earth will again be one as it was in the garden. And in that day we will behold God himself even as he sees us and yet fully accepts us. But if you look at Jesus' version of this vision, he's added something to it. In his vision, the angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man, meaning that this communion ultimately rests on Jesus. He will accomplish it. This is a reference to the entire body of Christ's redemptive work, not just his death on the cross. It begins when he becomes a man in the incarnation. His earthly ministry, his suffering and his death on behalf of sinners, his resurrection as a down payment on the renewal of all things and his return when he will consummate and bring about this fully realized and fully restored kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us that this vision of the kingdom should fill us with hope, endurance, and patience. It should fill us with an energy that does not depend on the on the supposed successes that we think we see or don't see around us. 
an energy and a desire to see God at work in the lives of others by knowing them. And it's an invitation to look at ourselves and to repent of our own idols that enslave us and that keep us from the great blessing and benefit and fulfillment of knowing and being known. Let me pray for us. Lord, rarely do we properly see the work of your kingdom at work in front of us. Rarely do we see the opportunity to know somebody for its true value and for its true depth, for its true importance. And often we are too caught up in our own real or felt needs, our own pressures to achieve, to pursue, to acquire, and to control, that we in fact, not only do we not know those around us, but we can in fact damage and ignore those whom we are called to know and love. Empower your church, Lord, as we drift further and further away from the mainstream of our culture. Empower us to create time, energy, and relationship, both as individuals, but also institutionally as a body. Give us the time in which we we come to know those outside of the church, those whom you love. Give us the wisdom, the humility, and the patience to speak gospel words that bring light. Teach us to do the same for our own families, for those closest to us whom we often take for granted, our spouses, our children. Teach us to seek them out, to be patient and gentle with them, to know them so that they may know themselves and their need of you. Amen.